With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. Good boys and girls, two footed podcast. Today is Wednesday. It's the third of May. It's a nice, dry, and sunny day. However, I was checking my weather app today, and I know this is the content you all tune in for. And it's predicting rain tomorrow, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 
and Tuesday, <clears throat> which is just a joy for all. So expect to hear more whinging about the weather here on the Two-Footed Podcast. Hope you're all well anyway. And last night in the Premier League, we had a singular match, which ended Arsenal 3, Chelsea 1. The Gunners, it's just very easy for them. Odegaard scored on 18 minutes. He scored almost the exact same goal on 31 minutes. <clears throat> and then Gabriel Jesus scored a rather interesting goal on 34 minutes, in which most of the Chelsea defence just decided to have themselves a big old lie down in the middle of their own penalty box, which was just a, a weird way to go about defending. Uh, Chelsea's first half display was nothing short of an embarrassment. They had one... I don't even know if you'd call it a real chance. They had kind of a half chance where Ben Chilwell managed to break through. Ramsdale made a, a, a fairly routine save that he made look spectacular. But other than that, it was all Arsenal. And it wasn't like Arsenal were even at their best. They didn't need to be. And I thought it was actually quite a mature approach from Arsenal. They played relative to the level of opposition. They did what they needed to do. And they basically shut things down at half time and just played a bit of keep ball in the second half. Noni Mudeki did get one back for Chelsea, his first goal for the club. Um, he was one of the few that actually did turn up and put in a bit of a showing last night. Lampard talked after the game about how the defensive line didn't play high enough, which is a bizarre thing to come out and say when you've picked a defensive line that includes Thiago Silva, who cannot play in a high line, and Cesar Aspilicueta, who can't really play anymore. Now, it was more of an actual team that he did set up last night as opposed to whatever the hell it was where he was using Kante and Gallagher as twin number 10s. Uh, the big energy lineup, I think he was calling it, which was strange. Uh, but I don't like Enzo Fernandez being used as a six. It's not a position that suits him. It doesn't get the best from him at all. In that shape last night, you would be better with him on the left, Kovacic on the right, or vice versa. And then a sitting holding midfielder and a disruptor who will screen your defence. Kante isn't suitable to that role. It takes away what he's best at and exposes some of the weaknesses in his game. And truthfully, Chelsea don't have that player anyway. It's something they need to address in the summer. The only player they own who could do that role is Ethan Ampadu. And I don't think he's of the level required. But one person who's definitely not of the level required is Frank. I mean, he picked Aubameyang last night to start. Aubameyang hasn't played in months from the start and was hauled off at half time after a fairly rotten performance. Um, Sterling didn't have a great game and there's no real continuity between him and Chilwell. Mudeki, whenever he picked the ball up, was sort of waiting for an overlapping right back. And poor El Cesar Aspilicueta, for all his huffing and puffing, just couldn't get there. Truth be told, Lampard set them up to lose. That is six games under Frank Lampard, six defeats under Frank Lampard. And I think if Chelsea were in any way threatened by relegation, Frank would probably be on his way out the door. I don't think they'd hold on 
any longer with him. I think they'd look to bring in somebody else that could maybe steady the ship. But uh, yeah, I mean, it hasn't been good. It, it's the the it's not even. You know, he says these things after the game about how, you know, he spoke to the players, he explained things. And then he talks a lot of nonsense. So it's not even that they're not getting the right coaching. They're not getting the right instruction either. Lampard doesn't know how to manage. And in his time managing the club, which, like I say, is now six games, Chelsea have scored two goals. One of them was the deflected shot by Conor Gallagher against Brighton, which was their only goal in the month of April. Not just under Frank, in general. They played seven games in April, and that's the only goal they scored. And then last night, Mudeki scores to get them their second goal under Frank. If you can't score goals with the attacking talent in this squad... I do I do have concerns because, yes, a lot of it isn't ideal, but Aubameyang, Pulisic, Joe Felix, Mudrik, Sterling, Zayic, Datro Fafana, Kai Havertz, and Noni Mudeki. I know there's a couple of injuries at the moment. I didn't name Broya because he's out for the season, but there's a lot of attacking talent there. There really is. I don't know how you haven't figured out someone who can score you a goal. I, I don't understand how this is working for them. Their only goal in April came from a midfielder. So they're getting nothing from this forward line at all. Their defence was shambolic last night. And I don't blame Wesley Fofana because he's a young defender who's had a few injuries and had a bit of a stop-start career so far. He's played 11 games for Chelsea, 12 including last night actually. And he's stuck playing between Cesar Azpilicueta and Thiago Silva, both of whom should have been moved on last summer. One of the big failings of Thomas Tuchel was not moving on, letting Azpilicueta go when he wanted to go and Barcelona wanted him, and not letting Thiago Silva go. And this myth around Thiago Silva needs to stop. The reason he looked okay, and just okay, in Chelsea's deep-lying defence was because it was a deep-lying defence where they played uber-defensive football under Thomas Tuchel. But he was exposed under Potter once he was asked to do a bit more. He was exposed under Tuchel any time Tuchel went to a back four and he's been a shambles under Lampard. And Jamie Carragher got himself all excited because he controlled the ball and cleared it off the line last night. Rudimentary basic stuff. He was in the right position. That's where you give him credit. But just because Carragher's first touch was like a curb doesn't mean every centre-back's first touch is like a curb. Uh, so another defeat for Chelsea. They stay in the bottom half and it is looking like a bottom half finish is being served up. 39 points. Level on points with Bournemouth. Then They do have a game in hand. They're now a point behind Crystal Palace, though admittedly with a game in hand. But they're six points behind Fulham with the same number of games played. Now, Fulham are also in bad form. They've lost six of eight, but I still don't think Chelsea make up six points on them, which means they will finish 
almost certainly in the bottom half. They're definitely going to finish below Brentford. They're 11 points behind. They're not going to take 11 points more than Brentford the rest of the way, even with a game in hand. And they've got a worse goal difference. Minus seven as a goal difference. He scored 31 goals all season with that much attacking talent at the club. Like, that that's ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous. 31 goals in 33 games. And bear in mind, Thomas Tuchel was only there for the first six games. They scored three, five, six, seven goals in six games and have scored 24 goals in the remaining 27 games. Now, we talked about this last year when Potter was at Brighton about how he couldn't get Brighton to score goals either. So I do think this might be a fundamental flaw in Graham Potter football that he just doesn't know what to do in the final third. If we take a quick look at Brighton this season, you begin with... They beat United, they draw with Newcastle, can't score a goal to save their lives despite dominating the game. They beat West Ham, they struggle to score against Leeds, they lose 2-1 to Fulham, and they managed to wallop Leicester. But since De Zerbi took over, three against Liverpool, four against Chelsea, three against Wolves, three against Southampton, four against Everton, three against Liverpool, two against Leicester, four against West Ham, two against Leeds, three against Brentford, two against Bournemouth, two against Chelsea, six against Wolves. They've scored 61 goals this season. Last season, under Graham Potter, they scored 42. They didn't add anybody other than Matoma, and it's not like he's a big goal scorer. Didn't add anybody to attack. Buenanote, of course, but he's been a squad player. Um, The season before under Potter, they scored 40. And the first season under Potter... They scored 39. So we've seen a massive uptick from them since Potter left. Uh, Before that, he was at Swansea for a single season. Sixty-five goals in forty-six championship games. It's not great when you consider Brentford finished a spot below them and scored seventy-three. Hull finished three spots below them and scored sixty-six. Now, I don't think Russell Martin... Oh, Steve, sorry. Steve Cooper took over after that. He obviously plays a defensive style of football. So they scored 62 and 56 in his seasons there. But he did make the playoffs both years, whereas Potter finished in mid-table. I don't think Russell Martin's done a particularly good job since taking over. So, you know, I don't think Swansea have had the best of luck. They've also had vastly different teams because so many players have left and been in and out on loan. But I just don't think he scores nearly enough goals. I think he can do the defensive side quite well. I think we've seen that with Chelsea this season under Potter. They were pretty well organised. I think he's good at the build-up play through the middle third. 
But I just think he struggles in the final third. And I do think it's something to watch when he takes his next job, wherever that may be. And he's going to have a bunch of options this summer. But I just I just feel like that's what that's what ultimately hammered him at Chelsea was the inability to score goals. Because if you look at some of the results they had, from when, when they started to really have problems. So they win their first three under Potter. They won their last one under Tuchel. So it was a four-game winning run. Then they draw nil-nil with Brentford. 1-1 with United. Lose 4-1 to Brighton. Get walloped. But 1-0 loss to Arsenal. 1-0 loss to Newcastle. They beat Bournemouth 2-0. Uh, 1-1 draw with Forest. 1-0 defeat to City. 2-1 defeat to Fulham. They beat Palace 1-0. 0-0 with Liverpool. 0-0 with Fulham. 1-1 with West Ham. 1-0 defeat to Southampton. 2-0 defeat to, to Tottenham. They beat Leeds 1-0. They beat Leicester 3-1. Like, there's so many results there. Like, Everton 2-2, fair enough, scored twice, but he should be beating Everton at home. Lose 2-0 to Villa. That's when Potter got sacked. There's so many defeats there by one goal. One, two, three, four, five. Five defeats by one goal. And an awful lot of draws. Six draws. Seven draws. Sorry, seven draws. And in only one of those draws... Did they score more than one? And in all of those defeats, they only scored one. Under Potter in the league, they only scored more than two twice. Once against Wolves, once against Leicester. There's just... There's no excuse for it when you've got that much talent at the club. I understand there's not an out-and-out nine, but... Are you really telling me that if you put Kai Havertz as a false nine, Mason Mount as a goal-scoring ten, Sterling on one wing and whoever on the other wing, let's say from the start of the season, because obviously we can't include players that were um, brought in in January because he didn't have them for the full season, but Pulisic couldn't have... Couldn't have got him to score some goals. Zajic couldn't have got him to score some goals. No. Couldn't have just taken a gamble and brought up a youngster like Harvey Vale and seen what he could offer you. I just... If you've got Sterling and Mount in your team and a player like Kai who can play that false nine role and be creative and occupy defenders I just don't see how you can't score goals you've got Reese, excuse me Reese James Ben Chilwell and Cucurella as your fullback options they're all elite level crossers of the ball and you can't create chances to score goals. Like, I know Kai is not a big-time goal scorer, but in his last two seasons with Leverkusen, 20 in 42, 18 in 45. 
Last season, he got 14 goals for Chelsea. Like Mason Mount. 14 for Vitas, 11 for Derby, 8 for Chelsea, 9 for Chelsea, 13 for Chelsea last season, trending upwards, 3 this season. Raheem Sterling's been a goal machine for years. Last season was a drop-off year, but prior to that, 10 and 38 and 11 and 52 for Liverpool as a teenager. Goes to City, 11 and 47, 10 and 47, and then explodes, 23 in 46, 25 and 51, 31 in 52, 14 and 49 last season, but many of those 49 were coming off the bench. Sorry, that was two seasons ago. 17 and 47 last year. Again, coming off the bench, he kind of lost his starting place. This season, seven. He's got four in the league. This is the worst season for Raheem Sterling since his first season with Liverpool, 12-13. Not counting 11-12, he played three games. But 12-13, he plays 26, 24 games in the league and scores two goals. This season, he's got four and 23, so slightly better than that. But well off what he did after that. Raheem was a machine to score goals. 131 goals for City from wide positions. Big goals as well. And you can't get anything out of them. I I just don't understand. Arsenal go back top. They're two points clear. City have two games in hand. All of the smart money, obviously, is on City to win the league. Uh, City will go back top tonight if they beat West Ham. Then they play Leeds. Then they play Everton. Then they play Chelsea. I think the title could be wrapped up by then. Last two games are Brighton away and Brentford away. Arsenal, their next game is away to Newcastle. I think they'll lose. Then they play... Brighton at home. I could see them dropping points. I think they beat Forest and beat Wolves. But I have them taking seven points from here. That will get them 85 points. And I think City, with their six games left, will beat that quite comfortably. Uh, I have City winning their next four, which will be enough to win the title. And I think they'll probably win one and draw one of the last two. So... I would say 16 points is likely for City. That'll be 92 points. A seven-point win in terms of the title race. And I think that's probably reflective of the, the level of the two teams. Um, this this was a good effort by Arsenal, but I, I just I don't see any chance of City letting, letting it slip from here. Uh, for Chelsea, their remaining five games, Bournemouth away on Saturday... Bournemouth are in much better form. I, I actually don't think they'll go and win that game. Forest at home, if they don't beat Forest at home, they need to just get rid of Frank and just say, look, thanks, but go away. If they've drawn or lost to Bournemouth and then they don't beat Forest, you've got to go because they're losing the last three. City will beat them at the Etihad. United will beat them at the Old at Old Trafford. And I think Newcastle will go to the bridge and beat them as well. 
if they were to lose all five and end the season on an 11 game losing streak, that is catastrophic for the amount of money they spend. It'll be a nine game losing streak in the Premier League. They're safe. They're going to be fine. But there's a real chance here that they finish 14th. There is a real chance that they finish 14th. Because it's hard to see who they take points from other than Forrest. Bournemouth will really fancy their chances at the weekend. And Forrest will go there thinking, we can get something because these guys can't score. If we get a goal, we'll get a draw here. At worst. Madness. We have games tonight in the Premier League. We have three games. Liverpool will... No, sorry, we have two games tonight. One tomorrow night. Liverpool-Fulham is tonight. Uh, the Reds go on in search of another win. They've won four in a row. They have yet to win five in a row this Premier League season. Fulham have lost six of their last eight. They're on the beach. Liverpool should win this game. City versus West Ham is the other game. And obviously... City will be looking to get that win, go back top of the table. And I think if they go top today, that's just where they'll stay. They they won't be budged from there. Um, they'll have a game in hand as well, so they'll have that, that safety net. It's very hard to see West Ham getting anything going into this game. Um, in terms of injuries, City, I think Nathan Aki is the only player They've currently got... Oh, De Bruyne as well. Aki, they're hopeful, could be back tonight. De Bruyne probably won't play, which is obviously a big blow, but at home they'll have enough. Uh, for West Ham, Skimaka, they just don't know what's gone on with him. And Kurt Zuma is out for a couple of weeks, and it's an issue. Because if they play Ogbonna, the Ogbonna career, the Ogbonna Aguirre thing looked a mess against uh, Crystal Palace. And I wouldn't expect it to look much better against City. I could see Haaland having himself a good old time up against that back line. Uh, we'll go with a City win. Uh, we'll go 3-1. Nice and comfortable. Don't think they'll have too much to worry about. I think Liverpool will win. I think I've gone 4-1 on the scouted pod for it. So I'll stick with that. Uh, largely because Fulham are on the beach. No Tim Ream. No Mitrovic. No Pereira. No Willian. Um... So, you know, they're, they're bare bones as is. There's nothing to play for. Liverpool are still trying to secure Europa League football. And, of course, uh, Liverpool got, uh, you know, the, the blow last night that Thiago Alcantara is to miss the rest of the season. So it, there's there's going to probably be a lot of similarities in the team that's played the last few games and the team that's played this game. He's the only one. Firmino will be back in a couple of weeks. Keita, we probably we might not see him again. Um. Thiago, Ramsey and Bacetic are out for the season. So Thiago was the one who missed the weekend that we were kind of hoping to get back soon, but it turns out the hip injury is a little bit worse than first feared. Should be. Should be a straightforward win for Liverpool. Should be a straightforward win to City. That's what we'll go with. And we will take a break. And when we come back, there's a couple of things I want to go through. I want to go through each Premier League team and just sort of what they need. To, to focus on this summer, like what's the big priority 
For some of them, it's going to be obvious. For others, maybe less so. I also want to talk about this thing I saw yesterday, which is um, pounds per points, like how much have teams spent for each point that they've taken in the Premier League. I think we've also got the new Hall of Fame inductees to look at, and we'll have the gossip. So I'll see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, uh, first things first, Big Sam is the new Leeds manager for the remaining four games of the season. Uh, Congrats to Sam. Always nice to be able to scam another Premier League club out of a few quid. And if you saw his uh, picture in the announcement on the Leeds Twitter account, he very much looked like a man chuffed to bits having managed to scam said club out of money. Uh, This is just an indictment of how poor... Leeds have been and how poorly run they've been really in Victor Orta's uh, dreadful tenure as sporting director. Obviously, they did sign some really talented players. And I do think there's a bunch of talent at Leeds. And if they could go down and keep the players they have, I think they'd bounce straight back up and probably run the table on the the championship. There wouldn't be many that I'd be looking to sell. And I'll actually get into their squad in a sec. But City away, Newcastle home, West Ham away, Spurs home. I don't hold much hope for Sam keeping them up. I really don't. Um, let's actually look at the Leeds squad quickly before we move on. Uh, Leeds have, over the last few years, kind of bought for now and bought for the future, which is not a bad approach in truth, but it's also meant that They've neglected certain areas of their team. Now, of the players they currently have out on loan, I think Lewis Bate is someone that can have a future at the club. Charlie Cresswell is another. Um, Jack Jenkins and Ian Paveda are both talented and in the championship. I think they could both play a role. Stuart McKinstry is another maybe in the championship would be all right. Alfie McCallman, the same. Leo Hjeld certainly would be good enough in the championship. So would Cody Drama. Uh, Joe Gellhart, I don't think Loriente would be willing to come back and go go down with them. And I think Roma have an option to buy, so he probably goes. Let's look at the squad. Melier, I would look to sell immediately. And if I was the manager of Leeds United, he wouldn't be playing for the rest of the season because he has been dreadful. Uh, Luke Ayling, I would be letting go. Junior Furpo, I'd look to sell. Forshaw, I'd let, look to let go. Robin Cock, I'd want to keep. Liam Cooper in the championship would be fine as a backup, so you keep him. Aronson you'd want to keep. I don't think Rocco would be willing, but I would want to keep him. But in all likelihood, he probably probably moves on. Um, Bamford you'd want to keep as a backup striker, but you need to address your number nine. Somerville you want to keep. I would sell Harrison because I think he'll have good value, which can kind of you know make up some of the money that you're going to lose by dropping down. Now, again, selling... Firpo, Rocker, probably that would help. Harrison obviously would be the next to go. Tyler Adams, I'd move heaven and earth to keep. Klassen, I'd keep as a backup. Lorente will go. There's more money in. Sonny Perkins, super talented. You want to keep him. You want to keep Darko Gabby. Rodrigo, I would let leave. Dan James in the championship would be fine. Struik, I would want to keep. Robles, I would want to keep as a backup. 
Sinister is another I would move heaven and earth to keep. Jorginho Ruter is one of the players you'd build the team around. Rasmus Christensen you want to keep. Amari Miller you want to keep. Weston McKenney is alone with an obligation to buy, or is it an option? Is it an option or an obligation? That's the question. Okay, there's nothing was said. There is something. If it's an option, you're not going to take it up. If it's an obligation, it just depends on whether it was based on staying in the Premier League or not. If you could get him back on loan for another season, I, I would do that. Nanto, you definitely want to keep. Gellhart, you want to keep. Yell, you want to keep. Montera, I don't know enough about. Drama, I would keep. Uh, McCalmond, I would keep. Vober, I would keep. Greenwood, I would want to keep. And then the rest are all kids. But there's a, there's a lot of talent there. It's not going to take a whole lot to come back up. New goalkeeper, Christensen, Cock, Vober, and uh, Streak as a back four. I think that would be really strong. If you could keep McKenny on loan, McKenny and Adams in front of that, and maybe go and try and buy Eunice Musa and just complete the trio. Just have that USA midfield. He's a homegrown player as well, so it'll be worth bringing in. But those three in midfield are proven to work together. And if Rocca leaves, which I expect he will, I wouldn't be against it and just go with really hard-working midfielders. Um... Like I said, I'd be looking to build the team around, I would say, Ruter and Aronson. So find a nine, play Ruter next to him, Aronson behind, three-man midfield, and then off the bench, you're going to have lots and lots of talent. Like Sinistera, like Nanto, like Yabi, like Somerville. A lot of wingers. <laughs> an awful lot of wingers. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think it takes a, a whole lot to to bring them back up. I think there's enough that you, that the players that you can sell that will make up the difference in the you know money between what you get in the Premier League and what you get through the parachute payments that you'd still be able to bring in a couple more players and keep the players you actually want to keep. Keep that young core together. And then when you come back up into the Premier League, you're probably going to be looking for a starting goalkeeper because I don't think anyone you'll get to join you in the Championship will be good enough. But maybe you could look to bring in someone on loan. Like maybe Josef Bursic, who went to Club Bruges when Parker was there, maybe he'd be willing to come back to England. And if he would, then you could bring him in on loan for a year. And then if you get promoted, you could keep him. In the Premier League, I would want to buy two new centre-backs. But if I've got a midfield, and you'd want to then buy McKenney, but if I've got that midfield and a decent attack, and you probably might need to upgrade the striker, like it's definitely something you could do. Get a young goal scorer, even someone on loan for next season. Get a keeper in on loan. Get McKenney if you can on loan. Buy Musa. Clear off some of the older Deadwood and the players that just aren't going to make the grade. And then when you come up, you've got a more 
succinct plan for what you need to do. You know immediately what you need to do. Goalkeeper, at least one centre-back, make the McKenney deal permanent. And if that striker that you've brought in on loan is available to buy, then you keep him. I mean, the ideal one would have been Balogun, but there's no chance he'll take a championship loan off the season he's just had with Reims. But Leeds don't don't have a lot to do if they go down. I, I don't think it needs a teardown. Now, look, the likes of Aronson and Adams and players that they might not want to go down. They might move on. But I wouldn't be surprised if they all got a clause in the contracts stating that if they go down, their wages just get cut. So again, you're not going to be paying Premier League wages for a lot of them. But some of them you just want to move on straight away. Um, We have our Hall of Fame inductees. So we knew Ferguson and Wenger were in, and rightly so. In truth, they probably should have been the first two inductees when the Hall of Fame started in 2021. Uh, Smaller class this year. There was eight last year, eight the year before. It looks like this year we're only getting five. So Tony Adams is in. Absolutely the right decision. He was the first great defender. Sorry, he was one of the two first great defenders of the Premier League. Him and Paul McGrath. When the league started moving from the old first division to the Premier League, Adams and McGrath were the top two defenders. Gary Pallister would have been number three. Tony Adams was incredible. One of the great English centre-backs. Brilliant on the ball, but a fantastic defender. Had that blood and thunder kind of mindset in that he was fearless, he was aggressive, but he was super smart as a defender, read the game brilliantly, easily the best defender in the league once McGrath dipped off and Pallister had the back issues until probably the emergence of Saul Campbell. So, and the arrival in England of Yapstam, of course, but Adams was towards the end at that point anyway. Um, absolutely deserving of his inclusion. Petr Cech, no issue at all with Petr Cech getting in. He's a top three goalkeeper in Premier League history. And one of the two in that group with them is Peter Schmeichel, who's already in. But I don't agree with this third and final one. I really don't. I don't agree with Rio Ferdinand being in the Hall of Fame at this point. He wasn't that guy. He wasn't that level. Regardless of how they've tried to rewrite his career, he just wasn't. Rio Ferdinand was a very good defender. He wasn't a great defender. He had a great career. And his team won a lot of trophies. But he played with significantly better players than himself. And in the partnership with him and Vidic, he was the Robin. Vidic was the Batman. He is the fourth best Manchester United central defender of the Premier League era behind Stam, Vidic and Pallister. It's far too early for Rio Ferdinand to be included. I have no issue with him getting in eventually, but not yet. Not when there were better candidates. John Terry has not been included. John Terry would not get in yet for me either but would deserve it more than Rio to go in this soon. Now, I've said a bunch of times, they've gone about this Hall of Fame the wrong way. I don't like the fact that it's open to public vote. I think this should have been, 
there should have been a panel elected. And the problem is, in all likelihood, it will be the same one-eyed people that tried to make out Rio was Bobby Moore reincarnate, um, which is what happened through his career, regardless of the errors that he made frequently. I saw Gerard Piquet today suggest that Rio was the first ball-playing centre-back in England, which is one of the bigger piles of crap I've heard in a long time. This led to United fans then trying to claim that Alex Ferguson basically invented the ball-playing centre-back in England. Well, Bobby Moore was a ball-playing centre-back in the 60s, so that would be before Rio. Uh, If we move it forward a bit to the 80s, Alan Hansen remains the best British ball-playing centre-back that's ever lived. Um, Mark Lawrenson was his teammate. He was a fantastic ball player. David O'Leary was an excellent ball player and more than comfortable at striding out from defence. I saw, saw some United fan try and claim that Rio used to regularly dribble his way through the opposition. It just never happened. Saw another one claim that he was like a midfielder in defence, not even slightly. Rio was a midfielder briefly and just simply wasn't good enough to be a midfielder at the Premier League level and was moved backwards. But it's insulting to this group alone that Rio's being called the first ball-playing centre-back because Tony Adams was a ball-playing centre-back. He played next to Keown or Bold. They were the stopper type. He was the ball player and he was excellent at it. And he'd learned from David O'Leary. It's just laughable to even make that claim. So, yeah, Rio being in, for me, far, far too early. Again, he he would have gotten in at some point. But I, I, I am struggling with the fact that we have three centre-backs who have been included. Vincent Company was the first one. Far too early for him to be getting in. Adams, no issue. But Rio Ferdinand? Jesus wept. I mean, company will be before him. Paul McGrath not being in is laughable. Now, I know they'll point to longevity. McGrath's Premier League career was over in 1996. He played uh, five Premier League seasons. But those five seasons were of an exceptionally high level and he was the footballer of the year in 1993. So, you know, Rio never won the footballer of the year award. John Terry did, undeserved. Uh, Virgil did. But McGrath was the first to win it and I just, I don't understand how he hasn't gotten in. This should have been done by era. They should have done this in like 10-year chunks. There's going to be far better players than Rio Ferdinand that might not get in for another 10 years. It's ridiculous. Uh, Right, let's have a look. I want to have a look at this points per... Pounds per point or whatever it was called. Let's have a look. Uh, here we go. So this this is based on this season. Chelsea have spent seventeen point four eight million pounds per point one in the Premier League this season. That's that's remarkable. Now bear in mind that since the January transfer window, 
in the 18-19 season, where Chelsea signed Christian Pulisic for £60 Chelsea have spent over a billion quid on players and Graham Potter. And look at the state of them. (laughs) Now, as I've said multiple times, I do think if you put a real manager in there, and they had one in Thomas Tuchel, but another real manager in there, and give him time and allow him to mould this squad. There is a great squad there. It's missing a goalkeeper, a short-term fix till Slanina's ready. It's missing that kind of ball-winning midfielder, and it's missing a, an out-and-out nine. But I, I think he could do it for not huge expense. David Rea, I know, and Chelsea fans might not like these suggestions, because they're not the big, shiny, fancy names. But David Rea or Unai Simon, although I don't think they'll ever want to buy anybody from Bilbao again. Uh, Acer Del Horno was a disaster, and obviously Kepa's been pretty much a disaster. Um, David Rea, Florentino Luis, who's got an existing relationship with Enzo, a partnership that is proven to work at a high level, and Jonathan David. And I think you get the... Three of them for about 130, 135 million. And then I wouldn't buy anybody for like 18 months. Let the squad find itself. Let the manager flush that squad out and develop the players that are there. So much talent at the club. The best academy in Europe as well, which will continue to produce, produce players. And If you stop buying players, a lot of those academy players that previously had been sent on loan and then sold off might actually make their way into the first team and might actually care about the club and not just be there for the money. I said when Bowley bought the club, my my actual big hope was that Chelsea would do the academy route and they would look to promote more players from within because... When you look at what they've got knocking around the league and Europe in general that came through their academy, they'd have an incredible team. I mean, Reese James, Mark Wehi, Fakayo Tamore, Levi Colwell, and Ian Matson. How about that for back five? James and Matson as wingers, perfect fits. Those three, Gwehi right, Tamori middle, Colwell left, perfect fit as a back three. Declan Rice came through their academy, didn't make the grade. Connor Gallagher, squad player, admittedly he'd be a squad player, but you know he's a, he's a, he's a Premier League caliber player. Mason Mount, Jamal Musiala. Imagine if they had him. Imagine if they had Musiala and Michael Elise as sort of dual number 10s with Mount and Rice as the two midfielders behind them. It would be a different role for Mount and he'd need to adapt to it and improve defensively. But I think it's something he's capable of doing. 
And then up front, you'd have maybe Broya, but maybe it's something you'd need to address. You'd need to buy a goalkeeper. But, I mean, that's only scratching the surface of the players that have come through their academy. There's loads more to flush that squad out. You know, players like hudson Adoy for depth. Robert, Ruben Loftus-Cheek for depth. Gallagher, who I mentioned, for depth. Harvey Vale. There's, there's just so much talent they've had and they've not really made the most of it at all. Tammy Abraham could actually be your nine. Tammy would be your nine. Solanke might still stick around as a backup. Now, if you've got Brohe, and I think the the upside of him is is better than what Solanke's become. But if you had Tammy and Brohe as your nines, I don't think you'd be too badly off. Musiala and Elise, elite creators. And they've got goals in the game. Mount would add goals from midfield because with a three-man defence, Rice could hold by himself. Again, Rice would have to be developed slightly differently. But Chelsea's academy, it just it hasn't been properly used by the club. They've never they've never fully put their faith in it. You know, if we look back at Let's just take Loftus-Cheek came through in 2014, right? Also came through that year, Andreas Christensen. They could still have him. Wouldn't he be an ideal fourth centre-back? Or maybe you'd have him in your starting three, whatever way you want to do it. Bertrand Traore, he's not great, but he'd be all right as a squad player. Ola Aina, good squad player. Jeremy Boga, wouldn't he be a great squad player to have? If you had him and Hudson Adoy as the backups to Musiala and Alise, um, Billy Gilmore would still be at the club. You've got Tino Andrin, Tariq Lamptey, Tino Livermento, Trevo Chalaba, another great squad player to have. Bashir Humphreys arriving through. So you'd have Chalaba. Christensen and Humphreys as your backup centre-backs wouldn't be bad at all. Lamptey and Livermento say as the backup wing-backs. Livermento can play on the left. Uh, Gilmore, Loftus-Cheek, maybe Nathaniel Chalaba as a backup holding midfielder. He's, he's now past the point of being good enough for a club like Chelsea, but he never got an opportunity and maybe he might have developed a little bit differently in a squad role. But so many of them have just more. And it should have been the great strength of Chelsea, this amazing academy that they've got, which is, without question, the best academy, not just in England, but in Europe. Kurt Zuma was there as a young player. He didn't come through their academy, but he's there as a young player. Nathan Aki is another one. Again, wasn't necessarily an academy player. What, what age was Nathan Aki when they bought him? To be fair, he was 16, so yeah, he was an academy player. So Nathan Aki, you could have him too. Um, yeah, they did just they've they've wasted this academy. I know they got Mount and they got Reese James out of it. That's great, but I mean, there's there's been so many talented players to come through it. Musiala, like losing Jamal Musiala, largely because he can't see a future for himself at the club. Criminal. Michael Elise the same. All they wanted was to see a clear path for themselves at the club. 
and Chelsea couldn't offer to them. Anyway, moving on. West Ham, 7.48 million per point. Big spending in the summer. Moyes hasn't embraced the new players, so we see what they have. Southampton, disaster. 7.06 million per point. I don't... I saw a piece today in The Athletic, which was basically having a bit of a pop at the role of a sporting director and kind of making out that they're not really all that important, which is just, frankly, nonsense. Um, And it talked about Chelsea as an example. And it mentioned Joe Shields, who was part of the recruitment drive at Southampton in the summer. Um, And it was basically laughing at Bowley having, like, four different sporting directors and not realising that's not their fault, that's Bowley's fault. But... Southampton's issue wasn't the recruitment of the young players in the summer. It's been the failures of the senior players. It's the senior players that have let them down routinely this year. Uh, Wolves, 6.54 million per point. Forest, 6.52. Leeds, 5.86. Manchester United, 4.41 million per point. Newcastle, 4 million per point. Now, bear in mind, they're currently sitting... 14th and 13th. And that's their return. Uh, Next up, Bournemouth, 3.52. Spurs, 3.51. Everton, 3.29. What a mess. Liverpool, 3.13. Villa, 2.87. Arsenal, 2.85. Manchester City, 2.54. Leicester, 1.79. That doesn't really seem all that accurate to me because they have spent quite a bit of money over the years. But, you know, it is what it is. Uh, Fulham, 1.62. And then the three that really impressed me. Crystal Palace, 1.52 million per point. That's a really good return on investment. Now, I know they had to sack the manager and bring in Firefighter Roy. But I think they would have stayed up anyway. But, you know, they've recruited really well over the last couple of years. They just need to push the boat once. This summer, go out and address, I believe they probably need three, maybe four starters. Right back is obvious. Everybody can realise they need a right back. I would look to upgrade the goalkeeper. I'm just not a fan of Sam Johnston. I think they probably will need a winger to replace Wilf. I'm okay with Eduard as the nine. I think if you get the right players around him and get him the right service, he'll get goals. The other position is the the midfield next to Dekure. Ahamada, I think, is going to be really good, but he's still young and a bit raw. So maybe you want to bring in a more experienced head into midfield. Now, you could just use Will Hughes, but he might not be of the right level. We haven't seen enough of him over the last couple of years. Uh, Brentford, uh, sorry, Brighton, 1.4 million per point, which is a, a tremendous, tremendous achievement. But as I've said multiple times, they're the best run club in the league, maybe the best run club in Europe. They've got a great owner. They've got a great approach, a great structure, a great process. And I mean, today I saw them linked to Davide Fratesi. Now I don't believe the link. I think that might be just a journalist putting two and two together and getting five because De Zerbi was his manager at Sassuolo, and De Zerbi was kind of the one that really put him on the map. But, I, you know, if they could get him, he's a, he is Pascal Gross 
turned up to 14. He's an upgrade on Pascal Gross. If they could keep, now I don't think they will be able to, but if they could keep everything that they have there right now, I think you're looking at upgrading Veltman, Gross and Solly March. And I'd upgrade the goalkeeper because I don't like Robert Sanchez. Veltman, I said before, Ronnie Edwards of Peterborough is pretty much plug and play. It's a jump from the from League One, admittedly, but he has played in the championship and was more than comfortable at that level. Now, for me, if I was them, the gross upgrade I'd look at is actually Alex Scott of Bristol. Um, Solly's had a great season and they've got Buenanote waiting in the wings, so they don't need to bring in anybody there. You'd look at Danny Welbeck and say, well, oh, you'd upgrade there. But they've got Evan Ferguson and obviously Joe Pedro's on the way. So if they could get Alex Scott and Ronnie Edwards for, let's say, 30 million combined, say 22 in add-ons for Scott. No, not even. Say 25 for Scott, five in add-ons for Edwards. I think that's two positions sorted. They've got other youngsters that will be competing for the gross role as well. But those are who I'd look at. And then a goalkeeper. But I think you'd get good money for Robert Sanchez from a foolish club because he's that ball-playing goalkeeper that people are fascinated by, even though De Zerbi doesn't think he's good enough on the ball. But I think you can go and upgrade your goalkeeper then as well. And if they could keep the rest, I mean, Colwell, of course, is included in that. I'd want them to keep him. He'd be your big spend. But it's unlikely they'd be able to do all of that and and keep Alexis and Moises Caicedo. I think they'll probably keep Moises and sell Alexis. Uh, Brentford are top, 1.31, and they're the closest thing going to Brighton. Great, great approach, great process, good people in the right positions, good manager. And I've said before, their summer signings haven't all really worked out this season. But I would back them to work out next season. I would bet we see a better Damsgaard next season. I think we see more of Kevin Shade next season. I think we see more of Keane Lewis Potter next season. And with a full season of right back under his belt, I think Aaron Hickey will will improve. Their focus, I think, will be centre-back. So we'll we'll actually hit that now. And we look at what one, one area of focus for each Premier League team ahead of the summer. So for Arsenal... It's got to be depth. It's got to be depth. Now, I do think there's a couple of areas in the first 11 that need to be improved. Granite Jack is the obvious one to upgrade on. But I think depth is the key here. You've got to find depth for the likes of William Saliba, who, when he got hurt, they had to bring in Rob Holding. Now, last night, I think Keywar, uh sorry, last night Keywar played there and... Did, did well, to be fair, but he's left-footed and you don't really want that if you want to build out the way Arteta does. So the biggest thing I would say to them is go and address your depth behind Saliba and behind Saka and sort out what you want to do in that Granite Jacker role. Uh, for Man City, I mean, <laughs> they, they could win the treble this season, so... It's hard to say that there's anything they really need to improve on. I think right wing, though, is the one position you'd look at. But if Grealish is going to continue to play at a decent level, then Foden can shift across and then maybe that's that sorted. So replacing Gundigan is probably the the one thing they can do. 
Newcastle, I think, have quite a bit to do. Even though they're going to finish in the top four, I would say there's needs for upgrade in defence and midfield. Uh, Manchester United, a lot of it is clearing out Deadwood. But I think goalkeeper is the biggest area of need for them. I just... De Gea does not suit what Ten Hag wants to do. For Liverpool, the biggest need is the midfield. Just, just, just no point in getting into any further. They need a brand new midfield. All three of them need to be replaced. For Aston Villa, finding more goals is going to be important. Only 46 goals on the season. Uh, only Fulham in the top half have scored less. So finding more goals is important. For Brighton, the biggest thing is going to be trying to hold on to their own players. But I would trust them to be able to replace pretty much anybody. But Moises will be tough to replace because he's such a unique player. So finding finding cover for Moises is what I would say. Because they lost Enoch Mwepu, who was kind of in that role. I think that's something they'll need to address this summer. It might be something that will cost them a bit as well. It needs to be someone that they can look at and think, right, well, he's Moises' backup this season and when Moises leaves in 12 months, he's the one that steps in. For Brentford, I think you've got to sort central defence. I I just... It's like a, a ragtag bunch at the moment. The best defender I think they have right now is Christoph Ayer. He's always hurt. Zanka is regularly hurt. Pontus Janssen is retiring. Ethan Pinnock is is solid, but not quite of the level I think you'd want. Ben Mee is reliable. I think you get one more good year out of him, but I'd be looking to bring in two others to pair with them because I can't rely on Ayer. Uh, for Fulham, I think you need to improve right back. I think that's the biggest weak point in your team um, and probably another centre-back as well. Crystal Palace, I've been over. That that right back is the biggest hole in the team. But goalkeeper and replacing Wilf. To be fair, replacing Wilf is going to have to take precedence because he's been a talisman there for so long. Now, if they can keep Eze and keep Elise, those two can replace him as the kind of the main guys. But yeah, I think you need to replace Wilf. Um, Chelsea manager. Manager, manager, manager. That is all they should be focused on. I'm still struggling with how they haven't appointed someone yet. It's been nearly five weeks since they fired Potter. Get that sorted and get it sorted quickly. Bournemouth, I quite like what they've done. I think they need to clear out some of the more championship level players and add some good depth. And I think they need to make sure they prioritise a right back this summer. Uh, For Wolves... Goals. You've got to find more goals. Now, Cunha, with six months behind him, I think will have a good season next year. They'll have Sasa back. There's goals in the pair of them. There's goals in Neto. I think they'll need to find goals somewhere else on the other flank. I could see a 4-4-2 next season. The other thing they might need to do is replace Ruben Neves because there's a real chance he leaves. Um, Now, I will say... Traore and Nunes as a two is something that might work. You could go and buy another type of holding midfielder to play with Nunes, play Neto and a winger, and then the two boys up front, and you might be okay. 
you don't necessarily need to find a playmaking midfielder, just someone who's good defensively and can recycle possession. Uh, for West Ham, I think it's the manager. I think the biggest thing they need to do is replace Moyes. I think if you put... Let's just say Graham Potter takes that job. If he lines up on day one with Agarden, oh sorry, with um, Ariola in goal, Ben Johnson as a right wing back, Palmieri as a left wing back, Carrere, Zuma, and Agard as a back three, midfield three would, assuming no one leaves. Midfield three would be Rice, Paqueta, and maybe Fornals. I quite like that idea for Fornals as kind of the the link between midfield and attack and Paqueta more joining the attack. And then Skimaka and Bowen as a front two. I think that's the type of team that could easily get top half. So manager. But replacing Declan Rice will also be key. And I actually think if they can get 80 million for Rice, I think they'll go and buy two, they, they can go and buy two really good midfielders and actually end up a better team. Like if I had that 80 million, first call is probably Everton for Onana. Offer them 50 million and then try and get Romeo Lavia from Southampton to pair with them. You get a sitting holding midfielder in Lavia and a box to box machine who I, I think can be absolutely monstrous in this league, in Onana. You pay the pair the two of them with Paqueta. I think that's a really good balance. Bowen's pace, Skimaka's hold-up play. I think those two could form a really good partnership up front. I'd still want to upgrade the wing-backs, but you'd be on the way just by selling rice and buying in two quality midfielders doesn't even have to be those two do you know Leicester manager obviously they, they they need to appoint a manager it can't be Dean Smith up or down Dean Smith cannot be Leicester City manager next season he just can't he's not good enough to be Leicester manager he's not good enough to be a Premier League manager Leeds manager simple as uh, I'm going to come back to Forrest for a second Everton I mean, I think they're going to go down. So the priority will be rebuilding themselves to come back up. But you're going to lose Pickford, so you'll need a goalkeeper. I think you can keep Patterson, Michaelenko. Tarkovsky and Keane might stay because of Dyche. I'd be looking to get Godfrey into the team, though. Um... Onana probably won't want to go down with them, but if he would, if he would stay, I mean, he'd be unbelievable in the championship. Um, Calvert Lewin, I mean, he probably wouldn't want to go down with you, but is there going to be a market for him? He's barely kicked the ball all season. When he has, he hasn't been good. McNeil, I think, would do a season with you in the championship. I think Tamari Gray would as well. So, from a playing point of view, it's probably replacing Pickford and replacing. Onana if he leaves. Uh, Southampton, clear out the older players and try and continue the youth movement. That would be my advice to them. Try and continue the youth movement. Try and try and keep all of these exceptionally young talents you've got. 
Livermento, Bella Kotchup, Larius, Basunu, Lavia, Alcaraz, uh, Diallo, Suleimani, Edozi. Try and keep those. Uh, Sekumara. Find a goal, a goal scorer, which they still haven't done. Uh, on Oahu, hasn't worked. And they probably will need a centre-back to partner with Bella Kotcha. But I would be looking to sell Ward-Prowse, Bednarak, Coletta Carr, Adams, both Armstrongs. I'd, I'd love to keep Walker-Peters, but he's he's not going to be willing to go down. He'll be a really good pick-up for a Premier League club, though. Premier League club will definitely pick him up. Wouldn't surprise me if Brighton picked him up. He's, he's not the same type as Veltman, obviously, but he's good defensively, can play both sides, does his job every week, just reliable, consistent. Um, he'd be great for Palace. He would absolutely fill that right-back spot for Palace to a T. He'd be great for Bournemouth. With Semedo out of contract at Wolves, he'd be great there. He'd be an upgrade for West Ham. Yeah, Walker Peters is not going down. There's, there's too many Premier League clubs that will need a right back. Brentford could bring him in and just have Hickey as your third fullback who plays both sides, and you can then rotate the three of them so you can keep Walker Peters and Henry fresh by playing Aaron Hickey, whichever side is need needs a rest. Um, Forrest is interesting. Steve Cooper's management has not been good in the last little while and he was absolutely atrocious in the Brentford game. But I do think he's earned the right to manage them next season regardless of whether they're up or down. From a player's point of view, I'd be curious as to how many they'd lose this summer. Because they obviously spent big, brought in a lot of players. My guess would be Brennan Johnson leaves... There's no chance Henderson or Navas is going to the championship. So you'd need a goalkeeper. I think maybe you could keep Niakate. And we know Worrell and McKenna are good enough in the championship. Rico, uh, Nico Williams would be fine. Omar Richards would be fine. Uh, you'd lose a Renan Lodi, but, you know, that's okay. If, he, if you stay up and can keep him, then great. But if you don't, then fair enough. Um... Omar Richards will be fit next season. and He's a good player and he's certainly good enough in the championship. In midfield, Mangala will stay. I think Danilo will stay. You'll have Ryan Yates. Uh, my question would be, will Gibbs White stay? And if he does, then great. Because he's the one I can build around. If I can put him as the 10 with Mangala and Danilo uh, sitting behind him, or use those three in a three-man midfield in a 4-3-3, or even in a 4-2-3-1, I'm happy. I'm happy. Now, I've got a 1E. I think he'll stay. Emmanuel Dennis is an interesting one. He's had a rubbish season. His value might have cratered, so you might just keep him purely because you can't get value for him. Um, but I'd like to see what Dennis and a 1E would look like in a in a consistent run together. But, I mean, if you could keep Brennan Johnson, a 4-3-3 with Johnson on the right, a one each to the middle and Dennis on the left with Gibbs White, 
Mangala and Danilo as your midfield three. And then the issue then becomes fullbacks. Nico Williams is better as a wingback than a fullback. I think Omar Richards is probably better as a wingback than a fullback. So you're probably, you're probably committed to a back three, which is, you know, is fair enough. Um, but I, I expect Brennan Johnson to go. So replacing Johnson and getting a new goalkeeper are the two things I think Leeds will need to do. Uh, news-wise, Cristiano Ronaldo becomes the world's highest-paid athlete after his move to Al-Nazir. Yeah, and I lost all his credibility with it. Uh, Lionel Messi has been suspended by PSG after taking an unauthorized trip to Saudi Arabia. He is an ambassador for Saudi Arabia. He had business obligations there and unfortunately didn't clear it with PSG. So he has been suspended. In all likelihood, his tenure with the club will come to an end this summer. So uh, all eyes on Leo to see where he ends up. Um, Frank Lampard has described last night's performance by Chelsea as embarrassing. Mikhailo Mudrik last night had a laser shone uh, at, in his in his face and in his eyes, and a man has been arrested as a result. Um, yeah, I, the, 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 the the booing of, of Mudrik last night was hilarious. It's not his fault your club didn't pay the money for him. Like uh, you, you might might actually have gotten away with a potential disaster there because it's one thing for Chelsea to spend that type of money and be able to wait for him because they're miles away from contention and they have an owner who's willing to throw money around as if it's confetti. But it's a different thing when your arsenal and you're working on a budget. Uh, Seamus Coleman in good news has avoided an ACL injury, which is absolutely great. Um, I don't know if he'll be back this season, but I'm hopeful that he will play for Everton again, uh, be it in the championship. I think if they go down, he'll definitely want to stay. He's, he, he is the epitome of class on and off the pitch. And I saw some Liverpool fans Having a having a joke and a laugh about the knee injury, have a bit of cop on. This guy made two significant donations to the Sean Cox Fund. He's a really good guy. I, I just don't understand the mindset of of wanting to laugh at him getting injured. I understand Everton fans laughed at Virgil getting hurt. Rise above it. Um. This is some quality stuff here. Uh, more Leeds fan views on Sam Allardyce. The idea of Sam Allardyce at Leeds is hugely reminiscent of Brian Clough back in the day. In my view, the problem with the squad and thus in their performance is that too many of them, although not all, have decided they can move elsewhere if Leeds get relegated. That's just nonsense. What are we doing? We are down... A desperate appointment like Allardyce looks ridiculous compared with their organisational structure. He's talking about Brighton and how organised they are. The club is in chaos. Um, This is brilliant. One fan said to come... Going from Marcelo Marcelo Bielsa to Sam Allardyce is like going from Michelangelo to graffiti. 
I think that's uh, disrespectful to graffiti. Uh, Real Madrid lost last night, 2-0 in La Liga to Real Sociedad. And that all but guarantees the title for Barcelona tomorrow. We'll have a quick look around the leagues and and the lower leagues and see what's going on. But uh, yeah, bad result for Real Barca. 14 points clear with five games left. So uh, win your next game and you're guaranteed the title, Barca. Uh, we'll do the gossip and get done for the day. Argentina forward Lionel Messi will leave French champions Paris Saint-Germain at the end of the season after they decided against extending his contract. Oh, yeah, it was definitely them. Of course it was. Absolutely. It wasn't him deciding he'd had enough. Manchester United have identified three backup targets to Harry Kane. Tammy Abraham, Latura Martinez, and Randall Colomuani. Now... I'm just going to say that Ed McCambridge isn't someone I'm aware I'm aware of. I don't know who he, who he is. I don't know what his work is generally like. But this is nonsense. There is absolutely no way anybody who's paid to identify talent has looked at Harry Kane and thought, right, who are the three closest players to him? And come away with that list. No chance. Uh, Real Madrid and Bayern Munich also want Muani very quickly becoming the most overrated player in the world. 120 million. He went for free last summer. Like, he was good for nonce, but he was just good. He's been good for Eintracht Frankfurt, Frankfurt, but he hasn't been great. He hasn't set the world alight. Tottenham's talks with Julian Nagelsmann have hit a stumbling block because of the uncertainty around the sporting director role. They need to get a sporting director in first before they get a manager. Barcelona director of football, Matteo Alemani, will leave this summer to take up a similar role at Aston Villa. I don't think he's any good. I genuinely don't, but we'll see. Um, Yeah, Lange didn't work out, so, you know... On he goes. Um, this is the, the third sporting director they'll appoint in, I want to say, four years. It's not great. Sam Allardyce <laughs> will earn a 2.5 million bonus if he keeps Leeds in the Premier League. Do you know what? He'll actually have earned it this time. Inter Milan are interested in Tosin Adarabio. Chelsea have agreed to sign Kendry Paez from Independ- Independiente Della Valley for 20 million euro. Um, he is 15. <laughs> 15. Can't move for three more years. Chelsea co-owners Todd Bowley and Bedad Igbali met in Los Angeles this week to discuss the appointment of Maurizio Pochettino. Two boys couldn't find their way out of a paper bag with a map and a compass. West Ham are starting their search for a midfielder as they prepare for the departure of Declan Rice. Uh, Ajax values Urian Timber at 44 million. Tottenham are set to compete with Arsenal to sign Mark Wehi. He would make a lot of sense for Tottenham. It doesn't really make sense for Arsenal. But in the middle of a back three, I think Wehi would excel. Bayern Munich are willing to listen to, honor, to offers for Sadio Mane. They'll get some offers as well, but I'm not sure there'll be much money involved. Fulham are planning to hold talks with Dan James. Over a permanent move. He hasn't really been good there. So I don't know why they'd do that. Juventus manager Max Allegri says. Whether the club are in the Champions League. Next season. 
is key to their planning with Angel Di Maria and Adrian Rabio both out of contract. As things stand, they are in the Champions League spots. They are three points clear of the Milan clubs and Roma, but they're in a bad run of form. So, yeah, it is It is very tight. You've also got Atalanta hanging about in the periphery there. So, Napoli are going to win the league. Um, Napoli have basically won the league. They're 18 points clear with six games left and a 20-goal advantage on on Lazio. Um, so, avoiding defeat in their next game, which is away to Udinese, will confirm them as champions. Um, Lazio are second. They're not guaranteed Champions League either. So it really is six teams still battling for three spots there. Again, we'll talk about that tomorrow, but I think Juve are a good bet to get in. Right, that will do me, folks. Enjoy the games tonight. Liverpool versus Fulham uh, should be decent. Um, but I think City West Ham could be a good game. They're both at eight o'clock, so enjoy those. Take care of yourselves. Bye bye. Podcast Network.